Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, and 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then from 1 Peter, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Jeff Skipper. I'm a pastor and church planner here at Redeemer. Um, so if you're new here, that means I am part of a group. Uh, we're gathering a group to go to the southwest part of our city to begin a new congregation of our church. And so um, I would just ask you to continue to uh, pray for us. The need is great there. The gospel's the answer. God is raising up workers to go with us to do that work. So uh, pray about that. Continue to think about how you might be involved, how you might join us. If you have questions, come talk to me. Uh, I will not kidnap you for the church plant, but uh, I don't know, maybe. Uh, but come talk to me. We loved, I'd love to, uh, to let you know how you can encourage us and, and be a blessing to us. But thank you for your continued encouragement and support. Um, now, if you have been around lately, as Joe just mentioned, next week we're transitioning to two Sunday morning services. And so we've said that the room's going to feel more empty. We realize that. But we want it to be, right? Because We want to make room to grow. We believe the best strategy for us to be an even greater blessing to our city is for us to grow so that we can plant more churches, so that we can send more people out, so we can support ministries like Life Choice and Heart for Winter Haven to an even greater degree. But in order to grow, we have to reach new people and bring them. And so in hopes to prepare us and motivate us, to do that work, uh, we've been going, uh, doing a three-week series on evangelism, and this is the final week of it. And so in the first two weeks, to catch you up, we've basically said, hey, go tell people. Go tell your family, your neighbors, your co-workers. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the church. Pray for them. Invite them. Bring your friends. Who's on your list? Live missionally towards the people around you, because now uh, we have room. But when we slow down and think, uh, I want us to think, what are the implications for us as a church if we really do this work? You know, when we look at the parable we just read from Luke 15, I want you to think about it like this. Uh, What does it mean for the 99 sheep who are still in the fold when the wandering sheep is brought in? Okay, how will the 99 welcome the one as the one comes in and works through things? I'm working loosely with that parable to give us a picture, when we invite non-Christians into our fold, how will we treat them and walk with them? Like, how do you interact with the lost right now? Now, the Western world has changed drastically in the last 50 years, especially in regards to Christianity. Now, we now live in what's called uh, commonly a post-Christian world. That means we can't assume people are Christians, that they grew up in church. 
that they have a biblical worldview or share our convictions or know the gospel. You know, we live in a secularized culture. If you don't believe me, go look at your Facebook feed for about 30 seconds, uh, and you'll believe that. You know, a Christian worldview with biblical convictions and practices, that's the exception. It's not the rule. But the good news is, Christianity has always flourished the most as this loving minority on the margins of a pagan society. When you look, at, look through history, and the way Christians treated those who didn't believe like them, and yet how they still held on firmly to their beliefs, both things, is what made them stand out and be attractive as a powerful witness in a broken world. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he said it like this. He said, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. So how do you, how do we interact with people who disagree with us? Or do, do you interact with people at all like that? You know, as we invite unchurched, non-Christian people who hold fundamentally different beliefs and deeply disagree with us on all sorts of issues, social, social issues, you can list them, how will we treat them? Will we hold people like that at arm's length? You know, you're, you're not really welcome here. Or will we tell them how wrong they are and put them in their place? That'll do it, right? Or will we do the opposite? You know, swing it to the other side. Will we tell them, you know, everything's fine. The Bible affirms all of your beliefs and practices. It's okay and we'll never have any hard conversations and not mention sin and repentance and the need for grace. Or is there a different way? And if so, what does it look like? Because we see plenty of examples of people in churches that swing from one side, one extreme, or the other. Those two unhealthy and unbiblical extremes I just mentioned. And I think... If we're honest, each of us can be tempted to fall off you know, one side or the other at some point. And we're going to discuss that this morning. So I want to talk about this today. I want to remind us and challenge us as individuals and as a church, as hopefully, right, as we do the work of evangelism and building relationships and inviting people, the landscape of our community changes as we invite the lost in. Are we a safe place for non-Christians to investigate the Christian faith to have room and time to grow. So I'm mainly speaking to the church this morning. I'm mainly speaking to Christians, but I hope if you're a non-Christian, this message does resonate with you as well as we talk about the gospel, where you can find hope, and what transforms us to treat the people around us differently with love. And so first, we have to look at Jesus as Savior. We have to start there. But also, I want us to be challenged as we look to him as a model for how to do evangelism and lovingly walk with the lost in a post-Christian world. And so in your, in your uh, worship folder, you'll see three points. Lost and found. I want to talk about our posture and our motive. Secondly, truth and love, our model. And then finally, some brief application, uh, gentleness and respect. So lost and found. To share the gospel, to love others well, we have to start from the right place. We have to start with the right posture, the one that the gospel creates in us, right, before God and other people. Uh, a pastor, Scott Sauls, he's a PCA pastor in Nashville, Recently wrote a book called Jesus Outside the Lines. I'd recommend it. It's very challenging. He said this line. He said, when the grace of Jesus sinks in, we will be among the least offended and most loving people in the world. I'll say that again. When the grace of Jesus sinks in, we will be among the least offended and most loving people in the world. And I thought, well, that's that's the attitude, the posture we need in interacting with the lost. Not easily offended, very loving. But you see, grace like that, it only sinks in. It'll only make us people like that when we know how lost we were and how found we are through the gospel. Until we know that, we won't be people like that. And so Luke 15 is a great place for us to be 
You know, Jesus tells three parables to stress how desperate humanity's situation is. The word lost occurs six times in that chapter. It occurs three times in the first parable we read. And Jesus is teaching, very simply, right? I'm going to cut straight to the chase. Every person is separated from God because of sin and needs to be rescued. No one is in, everyone's out. Now, if we think just in a general sense, the idea of humanity being lost isn't new. We see it in secular songs, books, shows, you know, where are we from, where are we going. We all have a sense that everything is just not as it should be, whether that means things inside of us or both outside of us, both those things. And the Bible would affirm the world's notion that things aren't right. Okay, the Bible says, yeah, you're right, world. Things, things aren't just right. But the difference comes in right here. The world lacks a consistent explanation for why that is, how things got this way. There's no narrative, no origin for, for that sense of lostness. And the world also says this. It says, okay, well, here's the way you can fix that. Since you feel lost, you can either, one, simply deny those feelings of lostness, whether they be guilt, shame, regret, sorrow, just ignore those things, or look inside yourself and find yourself. That's the way to get found. Or, you know, look to another person or to created things to be found and find fulfillment. And that's where Christianity would say, no, none of those options will ultimately satisfy you. And Jesus essentially says that here, right, in these parables. If you read Luke 15, he says, yes, you are lost, correct. Things are broken, absolutely. But the situation is much worse than you can imagine. (laughs) You're kind of on the right track, world, but you haven't went far enough with it. And that's why in this parable... He uses a picture of sheep. Now, I've never tended sheep, but I've learned that. that I didn't know if you knew that by looking at me, but let's fill you in there. I've never tended sheep, but, you know, from what I understand, sheep are dumb, helpless animals, okay? And, And apparently they will wander up to patches of grass on cliffs to eat, and they will get stuck and potentially even fall to their death, or they will wander out in snow, and they'll get buried in snow, and they'll die. And if they are found, they have to be knocked down, tied up, and carried home. You know, like I do with my boys. You know, it's the same. After service, you'll see it out here. I promise. It's embarrassing. Don't stare. But it goes down like that. Okay? Knocked down, tied up, carried home. So I kind of get it. You know, sheep need it all. This is a spiritual insult to us. I hope you feel that. Okay, you're sheep. Think about it. A dog or a cat, most of them, they just need pointers. They just need advice. They might find their way home. You can kind of get them there. You know, even a horse can, can be led, you know, right? Uh, I mean, they need some assistance and direction. It's a joint effort, but not a sheep. They need it all. And that's why the book of Isaiah, you probably know this line. There's a Bible verse that says, we all like sheep have gone astray. And that's saying that our souls are feeding on things other than the God who made us. That could be approval relationships, money, pleasure, anything, anything. And those things are killing us because we weren't made to run on those things, but we're seeking out those patches of grass. We were made to run on Him, and because we've sought out those other things, we could call them idols, the Bible calls it that, we've gotten ourselves into a helpless situation. Now, our relationship with God has been broken, and this parable saying, you are in danger and you need to be found. And being found means made right with Him. This is your ultimate problem. And it says not your accomplishments, your reputation, your degrees, your your charity work, your good parenting. I don't have to worry about that too much. None of that stuff can get us found. 
None of that can get us found. Remember, you're sheep. You don't need a little bit of help. We need it all. And the amazing thing these parables show us is that God loves lost people like us. That's good news. He loves lost people like that. And he searches for them. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the gospel. The good news is that Jesus left his safe place, his home, to seek us out in our desperate situation by living a perfect life for us, by dying for our sins so that we could be forgiven, by rising again, coming to life again to guarantee us eternal life, and then giving us his spirit and his heart, a new heart to change our desires, and he begins renewing us in the image of God. And it's all by unconditional free grace. All of that is by unconditional free grace. Remember, he said, you can't earn it. And it can only be received by faith. And so when we believe in him and we begin to turn from our sins, those things we've chased, we turn, all of heaven rejoices, we learned last week. This little parable, it's amazing, it tells our entire story and the nature of salvation. I love it. So when we experience that rescuing grace. Remember that quote? When that grace sinks in, when we say, wow, I was that far gone. I'm so undeserving. And God has been so good, good to me. Then, only then, are we in the right posture to go to others with a joyful humility. So the gospel should make us some of the least offended people in the world when we interact with others. Why? Because no one is more lost than we were. Nobody's more lost than we were. You know, we sang it earlier. The Bible says, you were a pile of dry bones. Right? It doesn't get worse than that. You were dead in your sins, without hope, enemies of God, on a trajectory of eternity apart from Him. The Bible could not paint a more bleak picture of our situation apart from God. It couldn't. And yet, we've been made alive all by free grace. Jesus sought us and bought us with His blood and put us on his shoulders, and carried us home. And if that's true, then that means absolutely no one is too far gone that God's grace can't reach them. And if anyone could have been, it's us. Is that our attitude? One old hymn says, His blood can make the foulest clean. I like to say, how do I know? The next line, His blood availed for me. That's the proof, right? Which means we shouldn't be surprised or offended by anyone else's sins, even if they're different than our own. The gospel makes us aware that we are not superior to anyone. Tim Keller sums it up well. He says it like this. He said, the gospel's this. We're more sinful and flawed, I would add, lost in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That will both humble us and satisfy us. And so I just ask you, do you know the gospel? Do you know how far gone you were And how found and loved you are if your faith is in Christ. And and then let me ask this. How big is the gap between your lostness and your foundness? How big is that gap? If you were kind of lost, then maybe you've been kind of found, which means you didn't need too much help, which might make you look down on the real lost people and be easily offended and judgmental. But if you were infinitely lost and you've been infinitely found all by grace, that changes everything. So listen, we have to start here when we start thinking about evangelism, interacting with the lost, the gospel at work in us, 
That's the starting point in evangelism and interacting with the lost, with those who disagree with us, because it crushes any, any little inkling of pride or self-righteousness. This parable crushes that. And it makes us humble, gentle people because we've tasted grace. That's when we're ready to share the gospel and love other people well. So working from here, okay, how does that lead us to walk with the lost one who's brought in? How does that lead us to interact with those who disagree with us? What can we learn uh, from Jesus as we look to him as our Savior? But now I want to look to him as our example in how he interacted with sinners. Um, You know, I'm learning in parenting. I have to be both gentle and loving on one side, but at the same time firm and truthful. Amen? Come talk to me. I'll teach you about that second one. I'm learning that. If I'm only what I call loving or, you know, whatever, my boys will run me over. If, if that's all I am, you know, you have to be firm with them. You all have permission to be firm with my boys. Uh, but if I'm only firm, they'll be scared, right? I'll exasperate them. They'll become hardened towards me. I need to be both loving and truthful. And I think this shows us two errors that we can make in evangelism. I want you to picture a road with a ditch on each side of the road and how we interact with other people. And I think each of us have a tendency to fall off one side or the other. And so as we talk, I want you to think about where you may fall. Because I think it helps us to know ourselves here. And the two errors are truth without love and love without truth. So let's look at both of these. The first, truth without love. I want to call truth without love the right side of the road. And we've said this the last couple of weeks. The way this usually looks is, I'm right, you're wrong, let me buy you some coffee and we'll talk about it. Right? Tempting invitation, Right? That's you, that, that attitude, truth without love, it's usually found in the religious, moral people who either haven't tasted God's grace or they've forgotten it. It's cold, self-righteous, it lacks humility or compassion. One journalist said this, they said the trouble with born-again Christians is that they're in even bigger pain the second time around. <laughs> Don't be easily offended, okay, we talked about that already. Or another one wrote, why do born-again people so often make you wish they'd never been born the first time? Ah, ouch, right? They probably experienced this truth without love approach from a professing believer. Wouldn't you agree? Let me ask you, did you come to faith because someone harshly told you how wrong you were and how deplorable your lifestyle was? Probably not, right? But is that where you fall off, right? Is this the side you fall off on? Truth without love, can you be harsh, quick to judge, quick to speak, slow to listen, join the club? If you push me far enough, that's where I'll fall off. But the irony is, right? Truth without love isn't really truth. It's ugly and it's harsh. Why? Because God's truth is always held lovingly because the aim of it is to restore and make whole, not tear down. Do you see that? Truth without love isn't really truth because truth is always aiming to restore and make whole. It's held lovingly. It's not to tear down. That's what God's truth is. That's the first error, truth without love. But the second error is just as bad. It's the opposite. Love without truth. Let's call this the left ditch on the side of the road. You know, this is the, it's all good. Everything's fine in your life. God approves of all of your beliefs and practices. You know, those who fall off on this side tend to never speak of any absolutes or exclusivity. You know, avoid any hard conversations. Don't mention sin or repentance or judgment in the name of love, right? The irony here is that's not loving at all. It's concealing the truth. 
Do you see that? Right? Love doesn't hide the truth either. You know, and I think that may be the greater temptation for Christians in our times because we might be accused of being intolerant, among other things, if we speak truth. But the thing is, again, love without truth isn't loving at all. It's sentimental, you know, at best. At worst, it's cowardly. It's full of fear and need for approval. Love and truth always have to go, go together. Right? If you only do one, you really get neither. Love and truth always go together. And that means for us to be faithful, we have to strive to be a Christian community who's compassionate and honest, gentle and unyielding with truth, loving and bold. And unfortunately, I think we see a lot of examples of one bad extreme or the other. And so is this possible to live this way? And I want us to look at Jesus, you know, how he interacted with others. We read earlier from John. John wrote, Jesus was full of grace and truth. That's how he ended up interacted with other people, especially sinners. That's those who, who weren't like him, those who he didn't approve of maybe the way they were living. And yet he was still full of grace and truth. And I want us to look at both sides alone first, okay? And then look at some examples. First, Jesus was completely truthful. He was dogmatic with commandments. He wouldn't bend one letter of the law. If anything, he intensified it. You know, he exposed idols of the heart. He didn't talk about just external sins. Jesus drew clear lines in the sand. He wasn't vague about truth. He said things like, unless you repent, you will perish. Right? His message wasn't, everything's okay, but turn from your sins and follow me. He said hard stuff. You know, he spoke about hell often. He taught moral absolutes. He made exclusive claims. Right, John 14, I'm the only way to the Father. If we are faithful to the Scriptures, we have to say Jesus was unwaveringly truthful. You know, but before we put him in a box and we go, yeah, that's right. Jesus flipped over tables. He told it like it is, right? He said, take it or leave it. Get on or get off. He told the truth. Slow down. (laughs) Slow down. He won't let us get away with that. He's way more complex than that. If that's all we take from Jesus and how he interacted with others, we will be harsh, judgmental, self-righteous towards people who don't agree with us, towards the lost, and they won't want anything to do with us. Yes, Jesus was uncompromising with truth, but the way he held truth lovingly and the way that truth led him to treat others was beautiful. He didn't use truth to tear down, uh, but to restore. Because Jesus was truthful, but he was also loving and compassionate. You know, if you remember, what compelled him to tell these three parables at first in Luke 15 is because these self-righteous people are off in the corner and they're grumbling. And do you remember what they said? They said in verse 2, He receives sinners and eats with them. That's who Jesus was with. The sinners, right? The public outcast. Another time they said he's a glutton. He's a drunkard because of the company he kept. They called him a friend of tax collectors. The tax collectors were seen as traitors. They were most despised. And they said, man, he's friends with that guy. They called him a friend of sinners. Jesus was all welcoming and greatly compassionate and gentle with the lost. He was full of grace. The religious people were uncomfortable because that's, he was scandalous with who he hung out with. And we don't see him put sinners in their place or shun them, and yet he could still tell them to, the truth, call them to leave their life a sin, but they didn't feel judged and they didn't feel condemned because they felt his love. He could be truthful and not feel, they couldn't feel judged or condemned, but they felt loved. He didn't compromise truth in the name of love or love for the sake of truth. Right? Weakening one is not the answer to the other. 
And so I want us to look at a couple examples of where we see this in the Gospels. You know, just two. Do you remember the, the rich young ruler? Mark 10, Jesus, uh, it says that Jesus looked at this man, this young man, and loved him. But the guy had asked him a question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. But his love did not compel him to say, you know what? You already have eternal life. It's all good. See ya. No, he answered him truthfully. He said, forsake your life of materialism and follow me. And the text says the young man walked away sad because he wasn't willing to repent. But what's interesting is Mark doesn't record that the man walked away feeling angry or he doesn't walk away feeling judged. He just felt sad. Why? Because Jesus loved him and told him the truth. Truth in love. This man must have felt Jesus' love. Jesus was relational. Remember Jesus uh, and his interaction with the woman caught in adultery at the well in John 8. Remember he stepped in, he stopped the stoning that was about to happen, and he said to her, his first words was, I don't condemn you. Amazing love, right? She doesn't feel judged. He says, I don't condemn you, but then he said, now go and sin no more. Truth. He was gentle, he defended her, yet he didn't affirm her sin, called it what it was, and called her into a life of repentance. Amazing examples of how to evangelize, of how to interact with the loss with truth and love. You know, as we look at Jesus, we have to say he was a safe place for lost people. They were attracted attracted to him. He was all-welcoming. He was gentle and loving. And yet he could still call them to repent and leave the things that they had put their identity in and find it in him or perish. And so as we look at that model, how do we do at this? Do the lost, does the world feel that we hold truth lovingly or that we're harsh with it? Or are we fearful of being truthful with others because of what they'll think or they'll say of us? If so, that's not loving. You know, love for Jesus always unlocked the door for truth to come in. And so, as we do the work of evangelism, you know, when new people come to our church, can we be a safe place for people who aren't ready to put their faith in Christ and repent of their sins and become members of our church, but still be here and be loved and wrestle with truth? Will we walk with people who struggle with sins that are not like ours and give the Spirit time and room to work in their lives? We must, if we remember the grace that we've been shown. The gospel empowers us to do this. This, this I mean, Jesus should stretch all of, all of us here. You know, it challenged me as a church planner. I'm building relationships and evangelizing with people, right? And again, we live in a post-Christian world. So the types of people I'm interacting with don't hold these beliefs. They didn't grow up this way. I can't assume things. You know, the way I grew up, I, I learned great things about uh, holding truth, God's truth in high regard. But even if the truths that I believed and that I held were right in and of themselves, I have to confess the way I held those beliefs could make me quick to judge, quick to speak, slow to listen, and otherwise, you know, in other words, self-righteous and harsh with very little grace. You know, God's humbled me there. He continues to challenge me and shape me as I grow in the gospel. And so I ask you, where does Jesus challenge you? You know, we all should be feeling challenged in one of those areas with Jesus. If you walk far enough with him, he will make you uncomfortable somewhere along the lines with how truthful he was or how gracious and welcoming and compassionate he was. And I think hopefully we'll be challenged in both, and that's good. We need that. 
It'll lead us to be better lovers of people and better witnesses of the gospel individually and as a church. So we have to be a people who interact with the lost and those who disagree with us with compassion, still be bold with truth. And we, we can look to Jesus as our perfect model for that. But finally, what does that look like? I want to list just a few practical ways as we close that we can live this out. So gentleness and respect. Now, you read that passage at the end after we read Luke from Peter. And Peter was writing to this minority of Christians spread out through Roman provinces. They're surrounded by people who didn't agree with them and even persecuted them. That's the stage Peter's writing. And he says this. I'll read it again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so briefly as we end, I want to just mention five practical ways that we can live this way. One, probably goes without saying, be truthful, but gently and respectfully. Carry the sword of truth and wield it lovingly. Defend without being defensive. Rebuke in hopes to restore, not tear down or be right. You know, tomorrow we'll wake up, we'll read uh, CBR, our community Bible reading. It's in Ephesians 4. And we we will read, speak the truth in love. And speaking the truth in love happens in the context of a relationship. Right? We receive truth best when we know that other person's for us. We can't give truth well from a distance, right? Towards people on social media that you don't even know. Don't try that, you know? It's, it's not, probably not helpful. So, yes, be truthful, but do it gently and respectfully. Do it in the context of a relationship, which leads to number two. One atheist writer, he wrote this piece, and this piece was called The Top Ten Tips for Christian Evangelism from an Atheist. Yeah, get ready to read those, right? Obviously, based on his experiences, maybe the good and bad, of being witnessed to. And so this atheist is writing, and he's saying, hey, Christians, here's some tips for you in evangelism. And here's one of them. He said, form genuine relationships with people. Don't treat them as projects. We don't like being treated as problems to be fixed. You know, Be a genuine friend to people. Love them deeply, even if you disagree with them. The gospel says, yes, that is possible, even if you disagree on various social issues. So as people come in, we love the lost. Build real relationships with people. Loving friendship is a powerful tool in God's hand. So let's seek to love, not fix. Remember, we're not the Holy Spirit. We can be truthful, but be a friend. Thirdly, in a post-Christian world, seek to understand first, not be understood. Ask questions and be a good listener. Now, we feel more loved when we're asked questions, and we're listened to, and we're understood. Free marital advice, men. Men, wives, right? That's how my wife feels love. I ask her questions. I listen to her. I understand her. I see a few guys out there kind of figuring that out. Good, good. I'm still working too. You know, we feel loved when that's, you know, our approach. Being lectured to, being lectured to, especially in the context of evangelism, feels condescending. It's not relational. You know, I got to practice this and, and learn over the summer. I went through a book with a friend who's not a Christian. He's openly just a skeptic, and he's, a, he's investigating Christianity. And yes, I got to share the gospel, but I, I, got to, I learned to ask questions and this, just listen well, and our friendship grew, and now we're wrestling through things together. You know, the gospel makes us slow to speak, quick to listen, and if, if we're sensitive to the Spirit, we'll know when to speak, and we'll speak gently. Fourthly, Commit to walking slowly with people. 
there's a book called A Faith Worth Sharing by Jack Miller. It's small, tells stories of his you know, life of evangelism. Great book, easy read. But one line in that book says this. It always stuck with me. He said, learning about God is a process, and love takes the trouble to listen and find out where a person is in that process. Learning about God is a process. You know, coming to faith for many people is a series of many decisions. So, let's commit to walking slowly with people in their journey towards faith and repentance. You know, to not press our timeline on them for their spiritual life and and be pushy. You know, that's not attractive. But to give them room, the spirit room and time time to, to work on their hearts. And then finally, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Romans 15. You know, if you're a Christian, you have been welcomed and received by God even though you were a sinner. And so is it possible that the lost would feel more welcomed and loved in here than they would in their normal circles? That we would be that welcoming, not not making them feel judged or condemned, but loved, for this to be a safe place. You know, we have to confess, right, our starting point, our posture. We have been shown so much mercy and so much grace that the love of Christ compels us to live this way. Towards, towards people we disagree with, towards people who are not where we're at in the faith. And so we have to live this way. And so I pray that we would be a people in a church who's known for both, right? Holding strong, robust theological convictions committed to historic, orthodox Christian doctrine, unapologetically committed to preaching the need for grace and repentance, absolutely, so that the world would look and say, you know, they're not progressive in their beliefs. They actually believe the Bible, all of it. That we would be that type of people, and at the same time, it'd be said of us, they receive and eat with sinners. They welcome everyone. They are scandalous with grace and the way they love people and walk slowly with people. A church full of grace and truth. A church where sinners would be attracted to us the same way they were attracted to Jesus. And that their presence among us would would move the self-righteous of us towards repentance because we've been shown so much grace. And so let's work on that. Even this week, and as we enter this new stage, this new stage of life with our church and evangelism, and as we live missionally towards our neighbors uh, and the lost, as Jesus has called us to. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, we do thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. God, help us to remember our lostness. Father, we're so easy. I mean, so quickly we forget, God, how far gone we were. Uh, God, but help expose the sins in our hearts that are even still there and remind us and in that humble us, Father, and at the same time, comfort us and lift us up to joy and hope, Father, because we are so loved and found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that that would compel us and make us a people who are full of grace and truth, Lord, and that lost sheep would be found by you and you would be glorified in our lives, in our city, in our church. God, do that work in us. Empower us to live that way as we uh, take in more of the gospel and the way you loved us and what the Spirit empowers us to do. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, our final single service, if that hasn't been made clear yet, uh, we are not meeting at 9.30 this, uh, next week. We meet at 9 and 10.35. So pick which one, same sermon, same music, whatever. Uh, whatever fits you best. Um, and go this week. Invite people. Build relationships. Take your neighbor cookies. They will know us by our love. Be that type of Christian, right? Love people. Live missionally. And let the Spirit work on their hearts. Be a good friend.
let the Spirit uh, have room to grow and move. And just remember that God goes with you as we do this work. It's not by our power. Uh, people are born of God, His Spirit. So let's go do that work. Uh, receive this benediction, church. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord uh, lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace, both now and forevermore. Uh, go in God's peace. Amen.